This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. We have a special guest sitting in with us on today's episode, someone I originally met in the early 90s, right as his career began to skyrocket. Today, we are talking shop with 2020 AIA gold medal winner and all-around cool dude, Marlon Blackwell. Today's episode is brought to you with generous support from Peterson. Hi, everyone. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we have our second installation of the series, Talking Shop with, insert guest name here, or fill in the blank. (laughs) So as we get ready, let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Marlon Blackwell, FAIA, is a practicing architect in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and serves as the E. Faye Jones Distinguished Professor at the Faye Jones School of Architecture and Design at the University of Arkansas. Blackwell is the recipient of the 2020 AIA Gold Medal, the Institute's highest honor, which recognizes those whose work has had an enduring impact on the theory and practice of architecture. Marlon was a 2019 resident fellow of the American Academy in Rome, inducted into the 2018 National Academy of Design, and selected as a 2014 United States Artist Ford Fellow. He received the E. Faye Jones Gold Medal from the Arkansas AIA in 2017, and in 2012, the Architecture Prize from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Work produced in his professional office, Marlon Blackwell Architects, has received national and international recognition with significant publication in books, architectural journals and magazines, and more than 140 domestic and international awards. MBA received the 2016 Cooper Hewitt National Design Award in Architecture and ranked number one in design as part of the 2016 Architect 50. A monograph of Marlon's early work, An Architecture of the Ozarks, The Works of Marlon Blackwell, was published in 2005 by Princeton Architectural Press, who will also be publishing his new monograph titled Radical Practice to be released in 2021. All right. So, Andrew, are you excited to chat it up with Marlon today? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. I haven't been around him in a while. Well, what? You and I and he were all together last at the AIA National Convention in Atlanta, correct? Atlanta, yeah. Yeah, I don't remember what year that was, but yeah, when we were in Atlanta. We, we went up to the, the hotel bar that rotates and we had some drinks and laughs and stuff. Yeah, that was in the Portman, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, I think so. I can't remember. Did we have that many drinks? <laughs> no but i just don't remember because we were in so many different hotels that trip because that was the hangout place to be was all these different hotels so i don't remember yeah there's some truth to that okay well let's get to it i hope everyone enjoys our conversation today with marlon blackwell let's go hi marlon welcome to the show we appreciate you joining us today great to be here how are things in fayetteville these days uh comfortably numb after all the quarantine business, we are slowly starting to ramp back up in a kind of graduated way in our office. So I'm actually in the office right now. You know, things are good. I mean, we're we're very fortunate to be busy and happy to have some nice weather and a little chance to get out and, and get some fresh air. Yeah, I think just about everybody's starting to feel that same way. My office is starting to have conversations about you know, we have about 100 people in the office, so we have all kinds of like protocols that have to get put in place in order to start sure. phasing people back in. It's, it's yeah. quite a task for sure. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we've just gone through the first phase of that. So I, I think we've got a plan. That's, that's the best thing. Get a plan and then, you know, <laughs> and then put it into action. So and then then adjust from there. So yeah. Well, let's start at the beginning. I know that you were born overseas in Germany and you mm-hmm. moved around a few times. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this had any impact on the path you've taken as an architect? Uh. Yeah, I think in the sense of being highly adaptable. I mean, I, I found myself having to adapt to different environments, different climates, different social contexts, all of that. So, yeah, I think I evolved into somebody that was very adaptable. And I, I find myself, as I you know, moved into architecture as well, approaching design in a sort of adaptable, agile way rather than kind of getting fixed to a, a particular point. So I think there's a relationship there. I would imagine. While you were doing all this moving around, what did your parents do? I'm assuming one of them was in the military, but... Yeah, my father was in the Air Force. So we lived in Germany and then Alabama and then the Philippines and then South Florida and then off to Colorado, then Montana, then back to North Florida and then back to Alabama. So my mother, you know, she was, you know, worked in the home and just trying to keep five kids, you know... Oh, yeah, keep you guys (laughs) under control, Yeah, under control. That's right. So, yeah. (laughs) Where do you fall in the five? Uh, I'm at the top of the order. I was the first one. So, Oh, you're the rule breaker. Well, yeah. Or the one who's, they broke the ruler over uh, quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm the one that got disciplined the most. Let's put it that way. I think that's how it goes with firstborns a lot of time yeah. when there's multiple siblings. Yeah. By the time they get to number five, they're pretty worn out. So they get <laughs> away with anything. Yeah. I'm the youngest of three. And I remember my oldest just, getting hammered all the time for stuff. And by the time I got to that same point, yeah, they're like, he's not going to die. Who cares? Yeah. Yeah. Who cares? Right. Yeah. <laughs> the other four or five have lived. This one will too. Yeah. You know, exactly. it's fine. <laughs> you know, the, the edges have been rounded and smoothed off over time. So the rough edges. A lot of people who become architects speak of knowing that they wanted to be an architect from an early age. Was this true for you? Depends on how you define early. I mean, for me, I I grew up through like elementary, primary elementary stuff. I was very interested in being a scientist or a paleontologist, interested in dinosaurs and, you know, things like putting bones together and making a full skeleton, things like that I was really interested in. And then, I don't know, I sort of evolved into wanting to be a cartoonist. I used to come home and cartoon and make up characters and uh, narratives and really into cartooning and you know I read someplace I think when I was like ninth grade or something like that about how cartoonists you know like the majority of them have some form of alcohol problem and it's like <laughs> oh I, I don't want to be like that you know I don't want to be alcohol so and then I thought well I'll be an architect only to realize much later there's a host of issues there uh, as well including <laughs> including alcohol and other types of vices so I would say it was ninth or tenth grade I, I had to design a house in my drafting class and build a model and thought, oh, this is cool. And I could draw, you know, and I had some proclivities for precision and making, and it seemed to make a lot of sense. From there on, I thought, well, I'm going to be an architect, not knowing what an architect truly did or never working in a firm or never doing any real reading. I just, I'd heard of Frank Lloyd Wright, but somehow I thought it was a very romantic career to have, you know, just driving around in sports cars, checking in on your, you know, world famous commissions and things like that. It didn't quite turn out that way. (laughs) You know, it's funny. I wonder how many of us have very similar stories because, well, I think it's true for people that are of a certain age, because when I decided I wanted to be an architect, I didn't really know what that meant either. And as I got older and I started to understand it better, 
I still didn't have the access to the information that, like if you're in 10th grade now and you decide you want to be an architect, there's no shortage of information that's available to you to understand what that might actually look like and be. Right. And parents that will give you that information too. Yeah. Like my parents were like, oh, whatever, just go to college. You know, it's like they were not that invested. They just were happy that I want to go to college. Yeah, I remember one of my freshman classes, like day one, was with Larry Speck, who was oh, one yeah. of my professors. And he asked a question. This is day one. And he said, I want you to write down on a piece of paper the five architects that you admire most. And I couldn't even think of five architects. I had Frank Lloyd Wright and I.M. Pei. That was it. That's all I had. Mm-hmm. And that nowadays, you know, just based on emails that I get, these 10th graders, there's no shortage of what they know and how plugged in they are, how prepared they are at heading into, oh, yeah. for us, which was an unknown journey. Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it was it was very different. Definitely a lot of groping in the dark, one question to the next to the next to try to figure it out. It was uh, yeah, a little bit different. So speaking of high school, you mentioned that a little bit. Did you take any classes? It sounded like you took a few that sort of prepared you. Mm, yeah, drafting. I think that's about all I had. Is I had a yeah. drafting class. I sort of, if I drew, I drew on my own. Like I said, I cartooned all the way through high school. I had a comic strip. And even when I went to college at Auburn, I drew for the Auburn Plainsman, the college paper and things like that. So I, it was an interest that I just, I was motivated by. Yeah, in terms of preparation, I, not so much. What was your, your group in high school? Where, did you, where do you think you fit in? Uh, I fit into what we call hippocs. And hippocs were usually athletes with long hair. So I had a letter jacket and wrestling, and then I had shoulder-length hair and partied a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so trying to be cool. That's a photo I'd like to see. Yeah, I know. That's what I was wondering, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's this well-known photo of me and Ronald Reagan together with, I had, you know, the kind of long hair and the, the knick-knick shirt with puka shells. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, it sounds classic. Sounds classic. Platform shoes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I survived the 70s uh, fashion thing. Oh, my gosh. It's coming back around, though. That's how I'd say a fall, you know, party, but, you know, a decent student, decent athlete, kind of in the cool, but not in the irresponsible kind of group of people. No, that makes sense. That sounds like a good group. It sounds like a good group. Good enough. And then, you know, lots of conflict, inner conflicts about religion and stuff like that. So, Well, let me ask you this, because you spent time actually beyond just going to college in an academic environment. So I'm kind of curious on your take on this. It's one of the things that I get asked about a lot. And it has to do with that architecture school is hard and it's demanding of someone's attention. And it's hard almost as if it's testing your dedication to go down this path, to actually be an architect. Was it like that for you when you were in college? Like, Did you ever struggle or have doubts when you were in the program? Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I'm thinking part of it was my, I, I think, not being terribly well prepared. Although I had a lot of tenacity and raw talent, I just wasn't disciplined. I also didn't, I didn't read enough or do enough research. And it really wasn't that encouraged at the school at, at the time. They wanted you to reoriginate everything. 
So I struggled with going to all the classes in an equal sort of way, being a, a well-rounded student. I sort of invested in things I was really interested in, and I, and I did love the design studio, but I, I wasn't a disciplined student, so I worked through when I was inspired and things of that nature. So didn't finish a lot of the work, but you know, always had, I think, really good potential, good ideas, just getting them realized and going the extra mile. And I'd struggled. I took six and a half years to go through a five-year program to sort of did the scenic route. <laughs> and I even flunked a studio once. That was just terrible. And at the same time, I'm head of the student chapter of the AIA. So I, so I had certain <laughs> leadership abilities and, you know, plagued with ongoing, you know, trying to figure out how to do my laundry, how to get a date, how to do a design elevation. All of that stuff for me was almost an equal. Prioritizing was the challenge. But I think at fourth year, I had a kind of a crisis like, well, maybe it's really about business and management. And so they had an architectural management option for your fifth year at Auburn at the time. I decided to enroll in that. And I lasted uh, one day. No, I sat in there <laughs> and I looked around and I looked at all these folks that were in there and they were all the B student designers. In other words, the what I would consider the, the most uninspired of designers who were there for other reasons. They were the ones that were going to be running the firms. That was pretty clear. And I realized I don't have the confidence to be in here. You know what I mean? I need sure. to go back and really understand design. I really understand what that means, really gain confidence that way. And so I left the next day and went back down into the fifth year studio. Best thing I ever did, but it was a, it was a real crisis moment. I'm going to have to go this route and, and it's the more difficult route. And it proved to be, but I'm glad I made that decision. Well, you received your undergrad degree from Auburn. Right. And you got your master's from Syracuse. In Florence, yeah. And then you worked for a while in Louisiana and Massachusetts. Not in that order, though. I mean, it's Auburn, Louisiana, Massachusetts, then Syracuse. Okay, I got you. I was out for 10 years before I went back to grad school, so they called me the Dick Clark of architecture by the time I went back. <laughs> well, what brought you to Arkansas, I guess? To Arkansas? I think after I got back from grad school in Italy. I had a great opportunity to teach at Syracuse. It was the recession. There wasn't a lot of work in the profession. You know, I had made my goal once I graduated to go back into the discipline as an educator and a practitioner, to be a liaison between the academy and the profession in a sense. But there wasn't much there in the profession, so I, I wanted teaching full-time at Syracuse for a year. After one winter in Syracuse, I realized I need to move back south. That's where I'm from. <laughs> And uh, I think I had like 200 inches of snow that year or something. It was, I really liked the school and the people, students were great, but the environment was really tough. And I noticed that architecturally wasn't a lot going on. I wanted to get a position at NC State because there was a guy, Frank Harmon, I'd heard a lot about there that was doing some good stuff. They weren't looking. I interviewed at UNC Charlotte, and then I had an opportunity to interview at Arkansas where I'd never been. I uh, immediately fell in love with the landscape. The interview went great. The next day after the interview, the dean made me an offer, which kind of I was taken back by because I thought there was this whole courtship you went through before they made an offer. And they're like, no, we really want you. They said, what would it take for you to come here? And I said, well, look, I'm not a scholar, so I want to teach, but it's really important that I be one of those that practices what they preach. I really need to start a practice. And the dean said, if you'll come to Arkansas, I will guarantee you commissions. Wow. And I was like, wow. So I flew back to Syracuse with this offer. And I had an offer from Syracuse. And I went to the dean's office. And he asked how the interview went. I said, well, I said, I got an offer. And he goes, oh. And he goes, yeah. They said, if I'll come to Arkansas, they'll guarantee me commissions. And the dean 
stood up from his chair, literally, and pointed at me and says, then you need to go <laughs> now. Because <laughs> I said, that ain't going to happen here. Yeah. So I made the move. And unbeknownst to me, the dean had no idea how he was going to do this. He told me this later. But I got here and within three, four months, I had commissions. So it was pretty cool. That was in 92, right? Because that's right. when you started. 90, 92, yeah. So you'd kind of touched on it just then. So in those early days when you opened your office, what did that look like? Was it just you? You know, because one of the things that we hear a lot about people who dial into the podcast or read the website, they're really interested in hearing from people like yourself, how they started, like when they opened yeah. the doors, did, yeah. how'd they get work, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a good question. Well, you have to understand that when I lived in Boston from... 85 to 90, even though I went to an office every day from 9 to 5, I actually did my own work after hours. In fact, I call it the after-hour independent studio, Marlon Blackwell's after-hour independent studio, where I would do competition or my own theoretical work, or I would do freelance work, a variety of things. And I actually uh, had been published at an art record home. I had another project published in architecture before I even went back to grad school. So I had already built some momentum. And so when I got to Arkansas, I just worked out of my, basically my home, my office at the home or up at school. That's how I started when I got the first commissions, just had a a drafting table. And it was a narrow little space that was where I lived. It was, uh, God, it was like, used to be a screen, little screened in porch, shallow porch that they had built in. So I just would draw there. I did that. I then moved, when I got married, I moved to, uh, two years later, 94, I moved downstairs in this, it was in this big house that had four apartments, old antebellum home and down in the historic district in uh, Fayetteville. I moved downstairs and had another one of these former screened in porches that had been built in. And I just, I had two drafting tables and I just, I just worked there. And sometimes IT, my, my wife, who was an architect, who was working at other firms would come and help at night. That's how it happened for, you know, from like, 92 up until our first child in 99. And I kept thinking, boy, I really might need to get an office, but I really didn't have any full-time employees or anything. And then in 2000, I I got my first real public commission. It was like a a library renovation. Well, I had some commercial stuff. I shouldn't say that in 97, 98, but I worked with firms. Then I would kind of combine forces because I didn't have enough capacity to do some of this stuff. And that worked out, but then I realized the limits of those kinds of joint ventures sometimes. You know, you're emotionally invested and the other firm is not particularly, so it creates a problem sometimes. I think things really began to change when started realizing that the public, I really had thought I would start out, do one or two projects a year for 30 years, have a small but profound body of work and an academic career that would allow me to pick and choose what I wanted to do, as well as to be vitalized by the educational experience. And that began to change when I realized doing houses was not, for me, was just not as satisfying. It's good, but I think the bigger ideas, the more effect you can have on people, the greater influence is really in the public realm. So that's started thinking larger. And uh, when our second child started to come along in 2000, she was born in 2001. When my wife got pregnant, she goes, okay, well, you got to get out of the house because we need this space for another bedroom. (laughs) You know, we're running out of space in the house. So I opened up a small office, a 400 square foot office on the uh, town square. And it was just me and one other desk in there. So that's how it started. And then 
over the next several years, we sort of slowly expanded into the space, you know, took the adjacent space and the adjacent. So it's just, you're basically in the bottom of the building in the foundation walls, where they had knocked out a hole in the foundation, you could go into the next space and fix that up. That's how it started. And then I I would add one employee, I think full-time, I had a full-time employee, I think it was 2002 was my first one. And then just kind of grew from there. And then IT joined she really formally joined, I think, in like 2001 or two, after our second child was born. She's like, I need more flexibility. So we became partners, and, and she became that other full-time person in the office. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. Andrew and I are sitting here today with Tom Bell, Vice President at Peterson. Tom Bell's entire 40-plus year career has been in the metals industry with the past 22 years with Peterson managing its architectural metals business. So, hi, Tom. Hello. Thanks for coming and joining us today. Great. Thanks for having me. Appreciate your time. A lot of our listeners are very familiar with Peterson, the company, and very familiar with PackClad as a product. But can we talk a little bit just about Peterson, the company? Absolutely. Peterson is on the move in so many different ways right now, not only an expansion in territory, but also in product line. We've taken a company that's 55 years old and moved off the roof down to the walls in uh, substrates of both aluminum and steel. And those have become very, very important as we cover from coast to coast in different environments and atmospheres. I know that Peterson makes both hidden fastener and exposed fastener wall cladding panels, but they make that for both exterior and interior use. That's correct. We've gotten more interest in that industrial exposed fastener look in restaurants, homes, museums. So that has actually been a market that has kind of opened up to us without us even knowing it was there. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's always nice, right? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) One of the things that I know that I've always been particularly fond of, Peterson, Pat Clad as a metal cladding product, is the number of standard colors and the custom color capabilities. That's correct. We've continued to add to that palette as we've grown uh, again across the country with 38 to 44 now standard colors. We found that what's popular in Florida may not be the same in Arizona, and those color charts have just had to expand. Sure. We are now looking into print coats that uh, used to be exotics that are now standards on our floor, that being uh, whether it's a metallic brushed look or even a wood grain, and those are now on our floor uh, ready to ship. Wow, that's amazing. The wood grain is interesting to me. (laughs) It is interesting. One of the things that uh, Andrew and I, because we've actually talked about PackClad as a product on the show before, Mm -hmm. we like the perforated metal. It's one of the products that, there's been a lot of interest. I'm sure that you're familiar with the growing interest that happens. It's not, you probably have metrics, I guess is what I'm saying. I just see it being used more often. Will you talk about the perforated metal products a little bit for Absolutely. us? Absolutely. It's a product that for so many years was used in sound deafening and other areas. And then all of a sudden someone got very creative and figured out that perforations in so many different patterns and availabilities is exactly what they were looking for in both a cladding application and a screen uh, sunscreen application and uh, it's it's just continued to grow we have numerous projects going right now especially on parking decks 
where some type of cladding is used on the siding, but ventilation is just as important as anything else. So that has become uh, something of great interest to many architects in the institutional side of our business. So do you have multiple patterns and uh, you know what kind of per panels yeah you it's just uh, you dream away uh, the perforators that have been perforating metal for industrial ruses all these years have just opened up the gates and we have diamonds to squares to really uh, uh, we have a casino out here that actually has a shape of the money like the dollar sign uh, yeah the dollar sign <laughs> is actually perforated into the metal I know that there's a variety of standing seam metal panels but this is a product that you can actually get for both commercial and residential applications. And it's capable of being warrantied. You have a really good warranty, do you not? Yes, we do. And, and the residential side of the business is probably as, uh, the fastest uh, growing part of our roofing product. We're uh, now in the, with our Phoenix facility uh, expanding all along the West Coast, and uh, our aluminum uh, roof product has all of a sudden uh, gr- had great interest from Seattle all the way to San Diego, and that's in their residential side. Our Florida market and Caribbean markets are our strongest markets in the U.S. right now, and again, I would say 20 to 30% of our total market there now is also residential. Well, that's wonderful. Well, if you'd like to inquire more about the perforated metal or Peterson's metal roof and wall cladding products, send an email at info at pac-clad.com. So that's info at pac-clad.com. And we'll put a link at the bottom of today's post so that you don't have to remember this and write this down. You can just click it and it'll take you right where you need to be. Tom, we appreciate you taking time to visit us today. Thanks for having us. That was our pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much. Was there a project early on that changed the trajectory of your practice around that time? Uh, yes. I think in uh, 2003, I think it was, I had the opportunity to do a golf clubhouse for a new, I don't know what you, I, I don't want to call it a country club, but it was a, a golf club that uh, John Tyson, who was the CEO of Tyson Foods, was doing. And I had been working on his house. His house had caught on fire. and the dean had uh, got me the commission to, to renovate his house and do some additions to it, and he quite liked it, and he gave us the opportunity to compete for this new golf clubhouse. It's 25,000 square feet of clubhouse and practice facility and quite an opportunity. Is that, the, is that the Blessings golf course? Yeah, yeah, Blessings. So we competed for that and won, and I had, at the time, it was just, there really were only three of us, and then I had some student assistants, and we got the commission, and then they immediately wanted us to team with the second place folk. They didn't think we had the capacity to do it. At least that was his partner's thought then. I was like, what are you talking about? I mean, why would I reward the second place guys with most of the fee and probably dilute the word? I was like, no, I'm not doing that. So to Mr. Tyson's credit, he placed his trust in us. I mean, we were we had no track record of something like this. He said, this will be your first public building. I said, what's the private deal? He goes, but everybody in the public's going to see it. And I was like, oh, that's a good way to look at it. So that was a big turn for us because, I mean, we really had to get professional. Then hiring people full time, doing a salary, meeting a payroll, liability insurance. I mean, just everything. Start tapping to think about things like health care for your staff. It was a steep learning curve. 
and then putting out packages dealing with commercial contractors. And it was a whole nother world for us. And also working at a larger scale. So you're not doing everything. I'd been doing everything for 10 years nearly. And now it's the point where I'm having to pass off and direct. And then how do you how do you get something realized at that scale with all the ideas that you have? So getting to what, what ideas were essential and what were not was really important so that you could scale up because there are a lot of architects that do, I think, really great houses, but they don't scale up particularly well. So having to also kind of leverage the vocabulary you've been building too to see if it could scale up. All of this stuff is happening simultaneously. It's kind of crazy, but we survived it. And we made a really nice series of buildings out of it too. Blessings Clubhouse, the Razorback Center, the golf practice facility. It was pretty sweet. Great opportunity. Sounds like a great opportunity. You know what? It's a beautiful project, and I was going to bring it up later, but we have a segue based on that answer that I was kind of curious about. And it was, so in those early days, what was the hardest thing about having a small architectural practice? I mean, of all the things we just kind of went through listing off, is there something that still stands out in your mind like, there's the fun part and there's the stuff that's just necessary. And I would assume that the hardest part falls into the necessary category. Yeah, I think, you know, surprisingly at the beginning, making payroll and because we were so small and, and the project were in some ways outsized for the scale we were, we actually did pretty well financially. I think it was figuring out how to become a firm how to make it feel like a firm that is indeed on par with other offices. I mean, the thing that we had to fight a lot here with the state was this sort of contempt in many ways for, for what I was trying to do. I mean, it was like, well, you're not a real architect because you're an educator, you're an arrogant academic, and because you teach, you obviously can do better work. And I, it was really, I found really insulting. This happened. I can give you multiple examples of it. <laughs> Uh, you're just sucking off the government tit. That was another famous line. Somebody, deal, you don't know what it's really like to blah, blah, blah. And it's like, wow, you know, it's like I'm, I actually took a 40% pay cut to go into teaching when I left the profession, you know, when I was in Boston. And I was like, you know, that's so untrue, but I had to prove myself. And that was the difficulty. I had to, okay, well, now I have to meet a payroll and I meet a payroll. And now I have to deal with really tough clients. And each time I would jump over a hurdle and I'd get a little bit more respect. You see where I'm going? Yeah. And it took probably close to 10 years to really gather the respect and the sense from the, the larger profession that we were for real. We weren't just some academic doing a hobby. We were dealing with the same issues that anyone else would deal that had an office. Yeah. How much time do you think you spend between your academic responsibilities and your practice responsibilities? Now or then? Well, both, really. Yeah, that's a great question. When I started out, it was mostly teaching and some practice. And then over time, for a good period of time, it was really trying to balance those two. I mean, the practice started to really take on more. And I would say up till about 2003, it was very 50-50. And then I had an offer to leave University of Arkansas and go to St. Louis to Wash U, a really generous offer. And the university, I think they were concerned about losing me, made a very interesting counteroffer, which was, we can't match the money, but we can match the time. And so what they did is they reduced my appointment, gave me a good raise, and basically in some ways supported my creative research, creative activity, as long as I kept doing really top-notch work, work with high aspirations. That then allowed me to grow sure. because I, I could better manage the teaching, although I got to say, you're still doing two, three jobs, right? 
And people ask, well, how do you balance the two? I said, well, there is no balance. Everything's out of balance. You're working seven days a week, 12 to 14 hours a day sometimes. And that's what it took to do, I think, a good job in both the teaching because I also then became department head in 2009 for six years. And I had to balance that out. I mean, at one point, and this is no joke, I was department head here, also teaching in one of the most intense studios, the comprehensive studio, also teaching a studio, the Saarinen Studio at the University of Michigan, and also working on some of the biggest commissions we'd ever worked on, you know, the practice, all of that happening at the same time, and trying to stay married <laughs> and, you know, and get the kids to soccer and do other, you know what I mean? Yeah. Sounds familiar. Some yeah, of I mean, it's some crazy. Of and exactly. I mean, we're all trying to do that. But it's also, I think, so invigorating as well, because you're really feeding off all these different things that are going on. Or It's just uh, highly stimulating. And I think doing some of the best work I had been doing up to that point. You know, I was going to say that it's funny, and this is not related to question, but it, your path is almost the reverse of what I'm doing now, I feel like. I've been working for 20 years, and then now I'm moving into academia and there's the same issues of respect, but just flipped in a way of getting respect from academics when you've been in practice for so long. Well, yes, I can relate to that. That's a tough one too. In fact, I think in many ways, that's the harder way to go. <laughs> Probably. Let's hope not. Uh, actually. Your tenure statement kind of yeah. gave me hope, but worried me a little bit too. Well, so we'll see. Yeah. Well, I guess I did 10 years of practice and then, you know, then went into the teaching thing, which seemed like a long time, but made sense. I actually, I think the reason you're hiding it more difficult because most of the people you're dealing with, A, never went to practice before they went into teaching, or B, if they did, they went for like three years or so and then they went in. So I don't think they even really understand what practice is. And they're in the educational thing and then they see the person with 20 years trying to come into teaching and it's like, well, what do you know? <laughs> and, yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, it's a very naive way to look at it, but that is what's happened. And they are two different worlds. So it just, it takes time to acclimate yourself to academia. So yeah, I'm learning. I'm learning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, just a, it's just a different world. That's all. The difference, too, is I think it's important that people understand what it is to be a professional, whether they're in academia or in the, in the profession. And I think it's the value of being in the profession before you go into academia, right? You kind of really understand what that means. I find sometimes people who, you know, only have ever taught and never been in a profession really don't understand what it is to be a professional. And yet they're operating in a school that's educating for professionals. So it's kind of, mm -hmm. it's a, you know, sort of strange. Yeah. Maybe now that you've been doing this a while, what's the one thing that you think you wish you would have known when you started out back in 92, as far as running a firm and operating? And Yeah, that's tough, man. I don't, I, I don't live like that. So. Oh, all right. Okay. <laughs> that works. I, I really, I, no, I don't, I don't, I don't live with regrets. You know, it's all about the discovery. And I just, I wouldn't trade any of what I knew at the time and what I was struggling with. I was, like you are now, I was trying to figure out how to become an academic and how to learn how to teach and then how to understand how that might affect the practice, you know, what I was doing. So I don't know if I'd have tried to foreground too much at the time. I think it would have really disrupted what I was invested in in that moment. So I don't mind the the stumbling and bumbling that I've done along the way. I think uh, it's a kind of trial and error method, but I, I really, really liked it. I think as a student, it's a little bit different there. I always thought you had to know everything when I was a student. I was, so I would never felt confident, oh, I have to know everything. But what I really should have been saying is, oh, I have to know enough to know that I don't know. And I need to have to form the questions that'll help me know. 
you know, learning how to learn. You know, I wish I understood that better when I graduated. But I discovered that along the way. I like the journey, man. The journey's cool. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people are actually going to love hearing that as an answer, especially coming from someone like Hugh, who, by the way, congratulations on being the 2020 AI gold medal winner. Yeah, thanks, man. It's very cool. It is very cool. And, and I was curious, other than peer recognition that comes along with winning the AI's highest honor, does this particular honor mean something to you? Because you have a long list of awards that you've received. Mm-hmm. This one feels pretty big. It does. It is. Yeah, I've had some really nice honors the last seven, eight years. It just sort of seems like it's all snowballed in a way. You know, you've been out there tilling the field for a long time as well. No, to me, it's just an affirmation of, you know, what we were trying to do, which is work at the highest level in places you least expected to find it. And I, I'm just so glad that the jury and the, the committees took the time to really look at the work, look at the story that comes with the work, which I think is really important, that we're trying to demonstrate that, you know, architecture can happen anywhere, at any scale, it can happen for anyone. It is not just reserved for the elite. And the fact that, you know, we're operating in what a lot of people call flyover country or in the middle, to me, it was a way of unifying the AIA and unifying the way in which we think about the practice of architecture, that it's not just relegated to the East or West Coast or Chicago or someplace, but it's happening everywhere. So from a symbolic standpoint, the fact that we received this affirmation for me was a great win for all of us that are small, impactful practices that are happening out here in the, in the middle. I think it was, a, it was a big win. That's what it means to me, really. I think it's a win for everyone in that regard. Well, that's a good answer. Yeah, I think it's a great way to look at it. That's the best one I can come up with. Yeah. (laughs) No, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of, you know, broke the ceiling a little bit. And the other thing it means to me a lot is that it came 30 years after Faye Jones, who was a good friend and mentor of mine, received it in 1990. So, you know, we're in this little town in Fayetteville, Arkansas, that's got two gold medal winners now. It's pretty remarkable. It really is. And then there's, of course, Sam Mockby, who received it from Auburn. So I'm also from Auburn. So all all of these things kind of tie in neatly together. But bigger question for me sometimes is why aren't there more from the middle? You know, and this is maybe maybe the beginning of that happening, that there's only been three in the history of the, uh, the gold medal award. So I think there are very deserving folks out there. You know, one of the things that has kind of resonated with me where you're concerned, so you may or may not remember this, but, you know, you and I met in the early 1990s, you know, because we have a mutual friend, but it was back in 2010, our friend Michael had written a book and I had a sister of mine who lived in Fayetteville. And so I was going to to watch her kids for a couple of days and he asked me, hey, will you bring this book? I wrote a note, will you bring it to Marlon? I said, sure. So I made arrangements to drop it off, and you were very generous with your time. I don't expect you to remember that day, but we... No, I, I, do, I do remember We that. spent a pretty good chunk of time. I mean, you gave me a tour of the school, of your office. You actually walked me through your house, which was amazing. And you gave me a list of a handful of projects that, since I was going to be there for a week, that I could go take a look at. And I did. I mean, I went and looked at a lot of these projects. It's right when the... Greek Orthodox Church was just about to open. Oh, yes. You know, they were actually spraying grass seed out there the day that I showed up. Mm -hmm. And I went to the Weddington liquor store, which is probably the coolest liquor store I've ever been in in my life. And to this day, I tell people, I go, I don't know how he convinced. I mean, I do. That's part of the charm of people like you is convincing other people that 
these kind of design gestures have value. And it was amazing space. And I wonder every now and then, as your commissions have gotten larger and larger, and the fact that you set down your roots in Arkansas, which is kind of a really humble, agrarian kind of mentality in this area, how being in that space shaped your design philosophy and how you think about things. But also, I wonder, do you ever miss these little projects like the Moore Honey House that you did or the Keenan Tower House, which seem to be just pure design gestures? Yes, yes, of course uh, I do. But we're still doing those, uh, believe it or not. I would just, the meeting, I just got off the phone before this podcast call with the folks at Herman Park in Houston, and they're working with uh, Michael Van Valkenburg and Associates, and we're doing a series of structures in the park. You know, these are shade pavilion or a small bathroom pavilion. So we're actually still doing things like that. Shelby Farms, you know, we did seven different structures from a boat kiosk to a stage pavilion to a visitor center. So those singular gestures we're still getting to do. Of course, the way I think you're talking about it is even with less of a program. And we just finished, I think it's going to be out in Architecture Record Interiors here pretty shortly, but a a ramen noodle place in Bentonville. It's 1,800 square feet, all made out of plywood sheets from Home Depot. So we're still being informed by these early projects, but we're still trying not to forget our roots. So we're we're still taking on those commissions, even though you're not going to make any money or anything out of it. But it's we love that feedback loop between the small and the larger scale projects that can happen. And you're constantly testing vocabulary and language so that it's, it's transferable, right, between the yeah. really tiny projects to the larger. And the vocabulary for the larger work we're doing all came from a lot of that early small work. But we, I think I never want to go and just say, well, I only, I only do the big stuff now. Again, it's architecture anywhere at any scale, at any budget, and for anyone. So we're doing our push-ups all the time around that idea. I think that's a great philosophy. It certainly resonates. And you know, and the truth is, if I look at, you know, in my own backyard, there's the Lamplighter School and the Barn. Yeah. And then there's projects like Thaden Reels. They still have some, there's some pattern language and you can see that the same hand that did these early projects like the Honey House and the, mm-hmm. the Keenan Tower House you can see kind of an extrapolation of thought that goes along with that, that absolutely that I think is really, really interesting. And so, but you know, there was something that I thought I would share with you. You may not remember it, but you'd brought up the idea about being inspirational earlier, Mm -hmm. you know, having inspirational work. And I actually wrote this. So this was 2010 March. I had just started life of an architect, the website. And this is when I went up and dropped the book off and we spent the day with, you had set up a PowerPoint for me to kind of look at. I don't remember what the PowerPoint was because you had gotten a phone call, so you didn't get to walk me through it. The idea was I would just click through it while you went and took this call real quick. And what was interesting, it was a client who was talking to you, and I apologize, I didn't mean to eavesdrop, but I was only like 10 feet away. So right. this client was talking to you, and we ended up having a conversation about this. You kind of elaborated on it when we went out to lunch. The client was trying to decide between you and the other person for a particular project. And they had kind of expressed that your designs they felt were very inspirational, but that the other firm had addressed specific functions of the programming and they didn't really know what to do. And the half of the conversation I heard, your half, centered on the idea of why somebody would consider hiring somebody practical over someone inspirational. And the takeaway I had from that was you had said a couple of phrases and one was the idea that this client was saying, your design is really inspiring. Can you make it more practical? 
versus your design is really practical. Can you make it more inspiring? <laughs> like almost the absurdity of that kind of comment and how as a philosophy to start with the inspiration or something that's inspiring and then evolve it into what it needs to be instead of the other way around is was kind of fundamental to at least our conversation that day. Yes. Uh, that's so funny. I remember that phone call. And I, the project is the uh, Crystal Bridges Museum Store, which we were competing for at the time. And it I was. And I remember the phone call from uh, Tracy Kood, who's the CFO for Crystal Bridges. And basically, it's their way of saying, we really like your scheme, but I just, you know, the other one's really practical. And uh, it's like, well, <laughs> you know, what do you want? Our approach always is to deal in the aspirational in the realm of ideas. It's kind of like, the, you know, they'll say, uh, shoot for the stars and hit an eagle, right? <laughs> Is that right? the phrase? <laughs> yeah, yeah. shoot for the stars and hit an eagle. Shoot for an eagle and hit a rock. But shoot for a rock and hit your foot. And so too many architects shoot for a rock and they wind up hitting their foot. You know, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. That's got to be the Arkansas version of that saying, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I find it a defeatist attitude. Yeah. And the apologist. Part of my message used to be, or still is in many ways, when I go out and give lectures, whether at a university or at an AIA event, is I never want to hear, oh, if we only had more money, everybody has budget issues. What about the ideas? Because the ideas, if they're good ideas, can be realized in multiple price points. We've proven that. That little church you were talking about, $100 a square foot. That was just a good idea. It's a good idea at $100 a square foot, and it's a good idea at $1,000 a square foot. It's just a good idea. And that's what we've got to be working harder at as a profession, you know, is the substantive nature of our ideas and how they solve for multiple problems as a way to create value, you know, one plus one equal five kind of scenario. Yeah, I hate you. Oh, if we had a better budget, it would have came out. I said, oh, yeah. We were fortunate to get that because I could tell they weren't inspired. But, you know, they crossed all the T's and dotted the I's. I said, well, look, we can get it to align better with what your needs are. Tell us more. And in the end, we got it. And, you know, the story of that store, I mean, it's National Interiors Award winner. It's, uh, they made so much money in the, from the profit in the first four months, they paid for the whole store. Yeah. So that's value. That's good business. And good design can be good business. We've had the opportunity to continue working with that client because of that. You know what? And I think that's a good point for us to... Because you've been generous with your time, and I know we're coming up on when our call is supposed to end. Oh, okay. So I wanted to move on to the last thing that we do on every episode, and it's the hypothetical question. Now, when I called you the other day, I let you know this was coming, but you, as a good sport, did not want to know what the question was ahead of time. Oh, yes, that's true. That's dangerous. That is true. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm not known for being the smartest, you know, guy around, so. Well, we took, we, took, uh, we took your willingness to answer this question and then to not know what it was in advance into consideration when we came up with it. So I won't say we gave you a, we're giving you a softball. But no, man, gonna... you should have hit me with a hard one, man. Hit me with no. a bat. <laughs> well, let's see. Let's see what happens. Okay, so here it is. You can no longer live in the United States. You can't even return for a visit and you're forced to move somewhere else within a week's time, where do you go? <laughs> wow. And here, and of course, we always have, Andrew likes to say that I change the rules after somebody answers so mm -hmm. that I win. Yeah, he will. Don't worry. This is a competition, Marlon, just so you yeah. know. Oh, okay. 
there are better answers. There are winners and losers. Yeah. There are winners. Such is life. Such is life. Yeah. And so is this to start over? How do I qualify that question? I mean, where where would I go? Yeah, that's the question. Right now, you have a week to move. Here are the considerations. Like, can you convince your family to come to this place with you? Can you work? Will you work? Is that a consideration? Does things like the current COVID situation figure into your decision making? Yeah, yeah. Well, then, then it's all easy. That's easy. I moved to New Zealand. Oh my God! You're <laughs> okay. Just so you know, that's my answer too. But go ahead and answer. Your... <laughs> my counter to that would be: What place wouldn't I move? I mean, I love Mexico. I love Italy. I love. I've been to Yemen, amazing country. You know, Mali. I mean, there's all these amazing places to go. Malaysia, where my wife is from, uh, Ati. What an amazing! This Southeast Asia is a beautiful place. There's so many great places to go. But I've developed some new friendships in New Zealand, and I'm, I think I'm going to go and actually teach there July, August, and October for a little bit, do some workshops. And I'm, I haven't even been, but I just I love the folks, the people. I love the spirit of the place. I love the fact that it's surrounded by water and seafood and has all these different climates. So. I think that might be a really, really great place to leave. And they have some really good leaders there, too. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good answer. Not to make it political. So. Uh, I thought for sure I was going to scoreboard everybody as soon as I dropped New Zealand down as my answer. Yeah. The good news is I, there is evidence on the site already that supports the fact that I was going to say that. I didn't just say it because uh, okay. you said it. Okay. Well, that's cool. One of the things for me was I don't speak any other languages other than the international language. But. Right. And that's unfortunate for Italy or Mexico if I were to go there. But uh, that factors in too. I wouldn't have much trouble I, with my family about going there. To tell you the truth, they have a very strong design community and design culture there as well. So there's uh, pragmatism flourishes there as well in the, in the highest sense, like in the sense of William James, the philosophy of William James, pragmatism. It's like very pragmatic folk as well, but have high aspirations and everything they do. So I think, uh, I think that would be my choice. Okay. Andrew, yours is clearly going to be the losing answer at this point, (laughs) but where would you choose? I I can't say that New Zealand was on my list, but it was lower down. And that's for a lot of Mm -hmm. geeky reasons. Cause there's a lot of movies that get filmed there and it just, it looks like a beautiful place. looks like a beautiful place. No, I was going to say Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's exactly what made me think of it. So I was thinking that it could be somewhere in, in South Asia, like Malaysia or Bali or somewhere like that would be nice. Or the Baja part of Mexico, just because I, I like that area as well. I would say Argentina, but for political reasons, it's a little unstable there. I've never been, but I would love to, if I had to, live out in Patagonia somewhere and just enjoy the nature aspect of everything. So if I had to choose, I'm going to go with the Baja area of Mexico. That's a beautiful place. It's somewhat isolated in a way. I mean, there's places that are more isolated and less populated, but it is a great place to be. And I like the ocean. I like the beach. And, but also it's got a little bit of topography to it. It's not just beaches. And it resonates with me as a place to be. I don't know what I would do for work if I was there. <laughs> well, I do. I know what you would do. What's that? Andrew has confessed that his other job, if he could pull it off, was he'd like to rent motor scooters on a beach. Oh, yeah, that's oh, true. There you go. There you go. Get, be my scooter uh, rental yeah, guy. There you go. Or I could write. Right. I, you know, I talked about writing as well, so be a good place yeah, to do Yeah, no, that's, that's great. I'd have to grow my hair long, though, and 
recreate 70s marlin i think yeah oh there you go yeah no, i think you <laughs> with the puka shells yeah i think yeah, if you go sure. online and google marlin blackwell ronald reagan you'll see it i'm pretty sure because i i know it was in our monograph it was intended to be a small photo they'd asked and then it became a full page how could it not so what's the story behind that with you and ronald reagan well yeah. i was a bible salesman to put my way through school well, every summer I was in the, placed in the top 20. But my first summer, the when we had the awards banquet in Nashville, Ronald Reagan was running for president or was the speaker. And then you got to go up at, as one of the top 20 award winners and shake his hand. And he gave you his book, a call to action. And then you got a photograph and he autographed it for you. And they sent it to you later. That was a deal. So that's how I got to meet him. And then years later, I, I ran into Bill Clinton and yeah, he, he, we actually spoke with me for about 10 minutes. I couldn't believe it. He acted like he knew me. But I met him in the Fayetteville High School cafeteria. at a memorial for his first campaign manager. He used to live in a Faye Jones house. And we got to talking. And I said, well, I told him the story. I was a Bible salesman and stuff. He goes, oh, I used to give Bible salesmen a ride. And I actually bought one a car one time, one summer. And, and I said, well, I met Ronald Reagan. I got this photo. But I said, I always felt my, like my chi was, you know, kind of out of alignment because, you know, I'm an independent more or less. And I got this Republican photograph, but I don't have one with Democrat. Put his arm around because I can help you with that. <laughs> so I got this photo of me and Bill Clinton together. It's kind of cool. So I show them together sometimes. It'll end up on the website, Marlon. Don't oh, you yeah. worry. No, if you're going to yeah. put that on your website, I, I think we have a scan of it we can send to you. That's hilarious. Well, but maybe we should get the Bill Clinton one so we can put them both up and balance it out for you. Yeah. Well, in these political times, yeah, I have no problem. I can, I can do that. Well, because it's an alignment. You got both. Yeah, that's so right. It's not You're in the My chi is in alignment. That is true. Thanks sure. for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. It was a lot of fun. I have no doubt that there's going to be a lot of people who listen to this that feel better about themselves after hearing some of your stories and where you start and what you've been able to accomplish. Oh, in your well, career. that's good. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, what do they say? It's all possible. All right, Marlon, take care of yourself. I look forward to the next time that we can have a drink at the top of some tall building. Yeah, that'd be great. Absolutely. Bob, Andrew, yeah, I'm going to be down actually in Dallas June 15th. Hope find a way to hook up or something. I, we're in the finals for the uh, Green, new Green Hill uh, project. Maybe we'll have a way to hook up in a social distance way, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yes. All right, Marlon, thank you so much again. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Marlon. All right. Cheers, y'all. Thank you for being with us today for episode 50. Talking Shop with Marlon Blackwell. We would like to thank Peterson for their gracious support of today's episode, as well as our media partners, Building Design and Construction. If you liked today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit the subscribe button so you can get So Fresh and So Clean new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. While you're there, please go on and leave us a five-star I Want to Hang Out with Marlon 2 rating. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, and photos from this episode. Be sure to stick around until the very end, and we'll share some outros from today's recording if there are any. Be safe, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. From the Arkansas AIA in... Uh, that whole paragraph is just a Why don't you start over? Oh. He was the... <laughs> 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 okay, sorry. <clears throat> All right. I'm not sure he thought it was that funny. <laughs> no, I...
<laughs> Funny enough. <laughs> you and I have another six degrees of separation that you may not be aware of. Kevin Bacon and I and you are all related. <laughs> <laughs> close. Close. Just so you can get it. And if you want, I mean, you can come up with the hot and steamy or whatever you want to okay, do. Okay, that's what I was curious about. If you, had, I didn't know if you had written something for me to say. One of these days I'm going to have to say, all of this stuff is written by Bob. I'm not the guy that's saying this stuff. <laughs> no way. Uh, yes way. All right, that's it. We can hit stop. Oh, don't we need to do the end? Oh, yeah, I guess we do, don't we? <laughs>